0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to in Galatians, a Messianic Jewish Commentary. My name is Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Ave our Father, our King, Lord, we are uh, thankful that you have allowed us to come together once again so that we can sit and we can study your words and we can fellowship together, we can uh, just love on one another and be filled with the words of life. Uh, we pray, Father, that you'll continue to um, give us a heart to do your will, uh, give us uh, a desire to... Um, take the good news and share it with those around us, Uh, we have to sometimes keep reminding ourselves that this is a... a this is an enlistment, Lord. This is this is duty that we're in. This is not just pleasure. We're we're in this for a reason. You've you've called us out for a reason. You've empowered us for a purpose. You've given us a mandate uh, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. To to take that truth to those around us who don't yet know, who are still in what we call either darkness or decision mode. Uh, Lord, let us not be ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of salvation. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, as we read in the Book of Romans, and so we we take this responsibility uh, seriously, and we thank you for this. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us, uh, that but that you are empowering us, that you're filling us with your Spirit, that you're uh, giving us um, uh, the the. Um, the boldness to go and to share and to study and to continue to press in. Uh, Forgive us, Lord, where we fall short. We know we're not perfect. We know we've still got a long way to go. Many of us are still in progress. And for that reason, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness where we fail, you and where we fail one another. Uh, Continue to raise us up as communities, as families. Strengthen us Protect us from the evil one. Help us to also uh, be camouflaged from evil men. And uh, help us to continue on in this great race. And we'll continue to uh, give you the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Well, I'd like to thank everyone once again for joining me for another week of Exegeting Galatians. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher out at Congregation Kehilat in Thornton, Colorado. And as I always mention, if you're ever in the Denver area, Denver, Colorado, Thornton, Colorado is just north of Denver, and we meet on Sabbath, and it's, um, if I recall, it's Saturday, uh, I think it's Saturday afternoons, I I have to apologize, because I haven't been in Colorado in four years, I I actually hail from South Korea now, which is where I'm bringing you the podcast from live each week, but if you're ever in Colorado, and uh, you can make it to my congregation the harvest, then stop on in, tell Pastor Mark that I said shalom, and uh, enjoy the service, okay? Let's date stamp our recording tonight. Uh, let's see, give me a second, let me see what Skype's trying to tell me. Uh. Okay, alright, Skype's okay. Um. Let's date stamp our recording tonight is, uh. oh, we're in a new month here, okay, this is December the 2nd for most of you, 2017. Um, and we are in week 81 for the Galatians study. We're just plugging along. As I mentioned in, the, in this logistics part uh, at the beginning before we actually jump into the teaching, we have been um, going through the book of Galatians more properly, we've been going through my commentary to the book of Galatians uh, for over two years now, a little, just, just a little over two years and if you've missed any of the past podcast recordings, uh you can find them a few different ways. You can either go out to my personal um my own personal Torah teaching website, which is uh That's spelled T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com. And right on the homepage on the top, there's a link that says Galatians. Uh, commentary, and when you click on it, there should be enough information on the page there for you to find uh, the link to the audio portions, the podcast that I record, as well as a link to the written notes. We're using my commentary, which is just a little short of 200 pages in case you're interested in printing it out in PDF format. Also, um, if you've got iTunes installed on your Mac or your PC, or uh, you've got access to iTunes on your smartphone or mobile device or something like that, tablet, then um, you can just do a search for my name, uh, Hanavi, uh, H-A-N-A-V-I-Y, in iTunes, or you can search for Galatians itself. There aren't too many messianic commentaries to the book of Galatians, just a handful. Messianic meaning uh from a like a, a pro Torah perspective. Most of the commentaries to Galatians are gonna be your traditional Christian viewpoint where they're probably not going to be encouraging you to uh follow after the Torah of Moshe as is defined by this term messianic. Okay? Nevertheless, um without further ado, for those of you who are live with me via Skype, just uh wanna remind you also that we meet for 10 weeks live, and then we take a break for two weeks. So we just came out of our two-week break, and we took a break for Thanksgiving and the week prior to that. And so we go for 10 weeks, we take a break for two weeks, so we're we're back out of the break, and we meet at... We go from about 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, in case you are interested in joining us live. Um, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., so to say, uh, approximately. And then after the live chat then, or the live study, we engage in a little bit of Q&A, kind of after chat, after uh, uh, after lesson chat, or whatever you want to call it, um, just um, asking questions, or throwing out comments, or midrashing or just praying for one another, whatever the Lord leads us to do at that time. Okay, so everyone's invited to stay if you can. You're not you don't have to, and for those of you who aren't able to meet with us via Skype live each week, well then you're missing out, okay? Come and join us. We'd love to have you. Alright, without further ado, for those of you who are with me on the live screen tonight, um, thank you for muting your microphones as you join. You should be able to see my screen, hopefully. I've got the beer-cut Amazon pulled up. This is actually a copy that Tim Hague's uh, ministry put together, and um, the reason I'm borrowing this tonight is for just a few reasons, one of them being that we the last time we met uh, was before Thanksgiving, I think Thanksgiving was just last week, last uh, Thursday, so a little over a week ago. And so um, I didn't get to meet with you all, but I hope everyone had an enjoyable Thanksgiving break and was able to eat to their heart's delight. And what a blessing to be able to be in a country. Most of you that are listening to my commentaries come from America. What a blessing to be able to live in a free country where you can eat and enjoy yourself, uh, spend time with family, and bless the Lord, right? Bless the Lord for for the family, and for friends, and for community, and for food, for food, yeah. There are, you know, millions of people around the world, I say that just in hyperbole, because I'm not sure exactly how many people, but there's, there's probably millions of people around the world who go hungry every day, and so the things that we just take for granted uh, in a living in a free country like America... What you know what can we say but let's just stop and thank the lord for um for his goodness and uh for his mercy and for his for the the, the nourishment that he provides for us and Judaism does this by way of reminding themselves to bless the Lord after they eat. This is based on a on a passage, a verse found in uh, deuteronomy eight verse uh, ten that talks about you know, when you have eaten and your uh, satisfied, uh, you'll bless the Lord for the good land that he's given you. And the emphasis in the verse is that after you have eaten and are satisfied, then you'll bless the Lord. So the the timing that's mentioned in the verse uh, gives way to the halacha of blessing the Lord after we eat, instead of blessing the Lord before we eat, like we do in, in common Christian circles. Personally, I don't see anything wrong with blessing the Lord before you eat, because we know Yeshua made a bracha before he uh, ate, before he broke the loaves and the fish. He, he raised his hands and made a bracha, a, bl- a blessing, uh, before he ate. So he, he established a, a precedent for us to be able to bless the Lord before we eat. And then we also have that uh, incident in the Gospels, where while Yeshua was eating with eating that last Pesach, that last Passover with his Talmudim, his disciples, he in the, right in the middle of the meal he stopped and made a bracha there. He made a blessing. So uh, we basically have precedent in the in the Bible for for blessing the Lord either before we eat, like we do in Christian circles, during the meal, like Yeshua did with His Talmidim, and His disciples at that Pesach, or after we eat, like traditional Judaism has preserved for the last 3500 years. So whether you bless the Lord before you eat, while you're eating, or after you eat, doesn't matter. The key point is bless the Lord. Amen? Amen. Okay, so for those of you following along with me on the screen, uh, perhaps maybe it's dinner time because it's like, what, 7 p.m.? or most of you are, 7, 8 p.m., something like that. Maybe you've just eaten dinner, and this is a great uh, opportunity to go ahead and bless the Lord after you've eaten. So I'll go ahead and read, if you look at the screen, I'll go ahead and read the English, which is um, a collection of verses taken from the book of Psalms, uh, and one from the book of Jeremiah, and but most of these are straight out of the Torah, and uh, you know it's clever for Judaism to do such a thing, to capture all of these verses. They're just straight out of the Torah, which is really, really nice. Um, I'll read the English running down the right-hand column, and then I'll go back and read the Hebrew as well for you running down the left-hand column. All right, so right from the top here, we've got, Fear Adonai, you his holy ones, because there is no lack. To those who fear him. Young lions may feel want and hunger, but those who seek Adonai lack nothing of all things good. Give thanks to Adonai, for he is good, for his loving kindness is eternal. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Blessed is the man who trusts in Adonai, and Adonai will be his security. I was young, and I've grown old, and I've not seen a righteous one forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. Adonai will give strength to his people. Adonai will bless his people with peace. Okay, and for those of you who own a, a siddur, like a standard Jewish prayer book, Judaic prayer book, um, you can find this prayer in that uh, book, just about every seder that I've ever seen has one. Or if you visit a restaurant that, abs- that happens to uh, cater to kosher uh, participants, you know, like in a Jewish community, well, then you'll find this uh, probably uh, written on a card, you know, embossed uh, and setting at your table, so that you don't even have to open up your seder just after you're done me- eating. Then it's usually found right there. It's a little card, a little prayer card, which is nice. Just pick it up, recite the beer amazone, and then you're good to go. All right, let's go back and read the Hebrew as well. Uh, starting up here, for those of you who are with me on my screen right there, remember Hebrew reads right to left, or backwards, to, according to most English speakers. The Hebrew reads, Yiru uh, et Adonai Kedoshayv ki ein makhsor li ra'ayv, kafirim rashu v'ra'evu, shel Adonai lo yachru chotov. Hodu l'Adonai ki tov ki le'olam chasdo, poter et yadeka umasbeel ho'chayratzon. Bauch Hager Ash Hasher Yivtahba Adonai Vahaya Adonai Miftaho Let's keep going. Starting right here. Naar uh yeah Naar Hayati Gam zakanti vul Raiti Tzadik Neetzav Vzaro Mivakesh Lachem Adonai Ozla Amo Yitane Adonai Ivach Et amo basalom. Alright, and that'll be our liturgy f- that includes Hebrew for tonight. It's not really taken uh, from one passage out of the Torah, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, if you look down at the bottom of this footnote, you'll see that, that we jump through a d- bunch of different verses out of the book of Psalms and one of the book of, out of the book of Jeremiah. Alright, let's turn in our liturgy section to the book of Galatians. This will be our New Testament slash Chadasha or Apostolic Scriptures, whatever you're used to calling that part of the Bible. Uh, I had a rabbi friend who used to call it the latter ketuvim, right? The the latter writings. Tim Haig is fond of calling it the Apostolic Scriptures, and I've kind of adopted that term because I like it. I shy away from this term New Testament just because of its implications against the comparison against the word Old Testament. I don't like calling the Tanakh the Old Testament, that part of the Bible. I don't like calling it old because it kind of conjures up this idea of outdated, you know, not in use, kind of old and dusty. I don't like that term. Uh, but many in the Messianic circles call it the B'rit Chodesha, borrowing that term from the book of Jeremiah 31, 31, uh, 32, 33, somewhere around there, um, where Jeremiah promises that he will make a, a B'rit Hadashah, a, a renewed covenant or a new covenant with the house of Israel. All right, so we're going to read out of the book of Galatians chapter 5, which is where we're parked in for our study, and we're just going to read the first seven verses tonight. Uh, we're actually going to be studying verse 6, uh, I'm sorry, we're going to study verse 5, 6, and 7, so three verses that we're going to hit tonight. So in our liturgy, we'll jump back and get the context and read verses 1 through 7. Of course, I'm reading from the ESV like I'm fond of doing, English Standard Version, and then I'll jump over and read the Greek using the uh, the SBLGNT version, the Society of Biblical Literature Greek New Testament version. All right, um, starting here in verse 1, ESV reads, For freedom Christ has set us free. Verse 1, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Verse 4, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? All right, good section there to study. Let's go back and read the, uh, the Greek section if you're in my... Uh, live study with me via Skype. This is over on the right side of the screen here. Uh, Sorry, I don't have any transliterated uh, Greek, anything that you could follow along to sight read. Um, So if you can read Greek, this is great. If you can follow along with me, we're starting right here is where the uh, Greek starts. And remember, Greek reads left to right just like English, so it'll be a little easier to follow. All right. The Greek starts verse one, te lutheria hemas christos e lutherosin steketa un kai me polin zugo duleas in cesta. Verse two, ide ego palas lego human hati in peritimnesta, christos humas uden o felesei. Verse three, marturo mai de polin panti anthropo peritimnomeno hati o est estin halanton namen poiesai. Verse four. Catergeitha te. Apha. Christu tenes en namu. Decauste. Teis chartas exipesate. Verse five. Hemes garpnumati pneumati ekpistios elpida. Decausunes apec de Verse six. En gar Christo jesu ute. Perotome teasque ute. Acrobustia la pistis di agapes in ergumene. And then the final posse, verse 7. Ettrecete kalos Tis humas in a coffin te alethia me peithestai. And we'll stop right there with our study because we're only going to hit verse 5, 6, and 7. But um, let's just remind ourselves of the context of where we're at in this section. Uh, Paul has been; um, he has returned to his familiar style of, of of rhetoric, where he's kind of going directly into the theology or directly against the theology of what most Christians would call the Judaizers. But I tend to shy away from that term Judaizer, and I'll tell you why later on in my commentary. But I tend to adopt the term uh, influencer, which I picked up from Mark Nanos, um, another. Uh, uh, Helpful commentator uh, to Pauline studies and uh, uh, other uh, commentators or commentaries are going to call them the agitators or something like that. But any uh, of those the villains of the piece, those who are upsetting the the Galatian Christians with this this new gospel of something, some other way of becoming uh, secured uh, within the righteousness of God. Paul is kind of going at them full guns once again, both guns blazing. I like to say, starting in verse five, he's kind of turned from this this motherly or brotherly or fatherly tone that we found in the latter half of chapter 4. And he's just kind of saying it like it is. He's being very blunt. Um, You know, verse 2, I, Paul, tell you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He doesn't doesn't sugarcoat anything there. He just uh, comes right out and tells it like it is. And that's rather bold of the apostle. And I think it's necessary because of what we talked about, how that there are many people that you might find in a community that are not really... Um, positive that they know uh who Messiah is they 've not made a decision of uh, one way or the other for Yeshua or if they have they 're not really um, uh, convinced by the Kodesh yet, by the holy spirit they 're rather still in kind of semi decision mode and these are the people that are really in the most danger in congregations because they can be persuaded uh, either way they can you know they can call themselves a Christian one week and then the next week they 'll They'll kind of abandon Messiah they'll, because it's not very popular anymore or it's, it's not expedient or it's, or it's it, it brings on too much persecution or whatever. Uh, they're not... They don't feel like they're getting enough out of their Christian walk, so to say. They don't feel like the Bible's kind of speaking to them. So it's these people that I think that Paul also senses that are in the most danger. And he has to kind of warn them the most uh, from falling away from this position where God is graciously bringing them into a a place of making a decision for Christ, a decision uh, uh, to become saved. So that's where we are in, in in the passage, and we're going to move down into this section where Paul's going to once again uh, warn the Galatians that if they don't make a decision for Christ and stay the course, like they have made a declaration for Messiah as a, as a group, uh, if each person doesn't stay that course and allow the Holy Spirit to do His work within them, then they run the risk of um, not only um, not being counted as righteous ultimately in the day of of, of, of final reckoning, but In the immediate uh, purview, they run the risk of basically being controlled by their own sinful nature once again. And he's going to mention all of these later on about uh, biting and devouring one another. Um, uh, uh, Now, When we get down to verse 15, um, they need to continue in this uh, uh, walking by the spirit, as we get down to verse sixteen and, and later uh, he 's going to talk about how that um, the works of the flesh are manifested in these various types of of, of old nature uh, 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 lifestyle you know the the, the, the rivalries the, the the sexual immorality and the impurity and all that other stuff that that the baggage that that the, the Galatians have come away from so um Let's do this then. Uh, Let's jump into my commentary. Let me just check Skype, make sure everything is hunky-dory, make sure everyone can hear me, and yeah, okay, everything looks good. All right, Um, for those of you who are with me in the live study, uh, you see I've got my commentary pulled up, and what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to be studying verses chapter 5 verses uh 6 7 of uh, what does i say 5 6 and 7 but in order to do that i want to jump back for a split second and um just remind everybody of the of kind of the 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 context of where my commentary draws its its kind of its main theme or its main thesis or my, my hypothesis if you will uh and to do that i'm i'm going to read a section that comes from the very very beginning which we would have actually if I would have written this two years ago, we would have covered this two years ago. But I, you know, I as you know, I update this commentary as often as I can, and I actually updated this first section uh, after we already covered it, which means what I'm about to read for you all never made it onto the audio commentary, which is why I'm going to read it for you now, and it will also segue right into helping us understand um, the mindset behind Paul's warning to not only the Galatian Christians who are reading his letter, but I believe firmly that the agitators or the legalizers, the Judaizers, the influencers, those who were also um, in the community with the other Galatians would have been privy to hearing the message that Paul is teaching to them. So he's, he's trying to both uh, reach his audience, his target audience, of the Galatian Gentiles. But at the same time, he's aware that the, the influencers, his, his opponents, are going to be listening to his words. So he's he's got stinging words for them as well. All right, so l- follow along with me for a moment uh, as we digress uh, just a bit. I need to read this page because it's necessary. For those of you who are following my commentaries to understand my basic uh, uh, hermeneutic principle of interpreting the book of Galatians and and indeed a lot of Pauline theology. And I'm going to read from section one, which was entitled Preface 10 Common Questions Regarding Tor Observance for Gentile Christians. In my commentary, it's actually found way back on page one. Uh, And then we'll jump all the way down to where we are in chapter five in my uh, commentary. Okay, so uh, let me read this paragraph. I read part of this a few weeks back, and since we just came out of a two-week break, this will be good to to read the remainder of this section that was never read into the uh, commentary, so I never got to teach it really. But for those of you who've been following me for any month, any length of time, some of this will be uh, very familiar to you. For those of some of you who are brand new, well, then sit back and enjoy. If you're like me, sometimes you want to know an author's main point within a few minutes of delving into one of his studies. This way you can decide if you want to invest the time it will take to read the next few hundred pages he wrote in support of his main thesis. I'm reading this paragraph over again, like I read it a few weeks ago, just to segue into the section that I'm going to talk about tonight. Uh, That being the case, I will go ahead and tip my cards to you, my readers, right from the beginning. From my limited experience of studying Paul with many well meaning folks, both Jewish and Gentile, laymen and seminarians, I have found that those who study Paul fall into essentially two often opposing camps when it comes to interpreting and practically applying his letter to the Galatians, and these are the two camps that I've noticed uh, perhaps some of you following along would maybe even categorize them further two or three or four camps, but this is the way I've distilled it and down to these two camps we've got those who fall into a camp that I describe as Lutheran or Reformation Paul, you could call it traditional Paul, you could call it Um, uh, there's another version I can't remember, but anyway, basically Lutheran Paul, uh, traditional Paul, I think that's the the other term you're going to find in many commentaries, traditional Paul. That's one way of describing Paul in his letters. And then the other perspective that you're going to find uh, as you navigate through uh, commentaries these days is a perspective called new perspective on Paul, or NPP. So these are the two basic uh, viewpoints that I have found uh, that... um, are the most uh, prevalent in Christian uh, commentaries that you're going to find at your Bible bookstore or you're going to find online. All right, so having read that first paragraph, let's jump, skip past these next two paragraphs because I read those a few weeks back. And let me jump, uh, starting with, on, this, on page two, starting with this paragraph right here. Okay, all right. These are my own thoughts to help you understand these two views of Paul, and this will go a long way towards understanding what my main, one of my main uh, hermeneutic uh, uh, viewpoints, or uh, kind of a, a scriptural bias, as it were, towards interpreting the book of Galatians, and what one of the main central um, purposes is for me to actually uh, convey this teaching to you. Here's what I have to say in my commentary, and I'm only going to read a page of this. Okay, the more recent school of thought. Uh, the new perspective on Paul, represents a break from Lutheran Paul in an effort to place Paul more sharply focused within the specific first-century religious Jewish communities that existed among. The seminal work that introduced this new perspective to mainstream Christianity was published in 1977 under the title Paul and Palestinian Judaism, written by E.P. Sanders, a Christian and New Testament scholar. Comparing Sanders to the Lutheran Paul... Dunn again notes, and we've already quoted from uh, James D.G. Dunn earlier, but let's hear from him again. He is a prominent New Perspectivist uh, Christian author, so let's hear what Dunn has to say. And we're going to hear Dunn, uh, who is a Christian author writing from a New Perspective uh, viewpoint. He's going to take a look at the opposing viewpoint, which is the Lutheran perspective that most Christians are familiar with. And he's going to describe it for us. So, And he's going to try and describe it in terms that will help us understand the the, the important... Uh, similarities yet differences between these two ways of of approaching Paul and his letters. Prominently, Romans and the book of Galatians, those two books, are going to get the most um, treatment when we're talking about these two viewpoints. Here's what Sanders has to say, quote, I'm sorry, here's what Dunn has to say, quote, Speaking of Sanders, who's another uh, uh, Christian author, he's the one we just mentioned that wrote the the, the Paul and Palestinian Judaism, the, the book that kind of kicked off the firestorm lately about this new perspective view. Here's what uh, uh, Dunn says, that Sanders, however, has built up a different presentation of Palestinian Judaism at the time of Paul. From a massive treatment of much of the relevant Jewish literature for that period, a rather different picture emerges. In particular, he, speaking of Sanders, he has shown with sufficient weight of evidence that for the first century Jew, Israel's covenant relation with God was basic, basic to the Jew's sense of national identity and to his understanding of his religion. So so far as we can tell now, for... Um, for 1st century Judaism, everything was an elaboration of the fundamental axiom that the one God had chosen Israel to be his peculiar people, to enjoy a special relationship under his rule. Uh, the law had been given as an expression of this covenant. Listen up very carefully because this is really important for those of you who are curious about this new perspective view of Paul versus the traditional view uh, that Christianity has been teaching for thousands of years. Um Dunn goes on to say, the law had been given as an expression of this covenant uh, to regulate and maintain the relationship established by the covenant. So, too, righteousness must be seen in terms of this relationship as referring to conduct appropriate to this relationship, conduct in accordance or in accord with the law. That is to say, obedience to the law in Judaism, this is still Dunn speaking. Obedience to the law in Judaism was never thought of as a means of entering the covenant, of attaining that special relationship with God. It was more a matter of maintaining the covenant relationship with God. From this, Dunn goes on to say, Sanders draws out his key phrase to characterize first century Palestinian Judaism, which is our, our now ubiquitous phrase, covenantal nomenism all right. And that footnote to number 2 was lifted from uh James DG Dunn's uh The New Perspective on Paul, uh which you can actually find online if you just Google search James DG Dunn and New Perspective. All right. Uh Dunn and then I go on to say my own commentary. Therefore, with regards to how how to better understand Paul's writings from within his own Judaisms and their first century covenant relationships, this is my opinion now, and to make his theological arguments more sociologically relevant from their perspective, Sanders employs a method of logic, or a, a description of his logic, that he describes as, quote, getting in, end quote, and, quote, staying in, end quote. And I'll explain those terms a little more as we go along. So, um, I say briefly now in this section, we're at the top of page 3 in my commentary, we've got this phrase, getting in and staying in, by Sanders, and where getting in deals with the election, and staying in deals with obedience, from Israel's perspective and from God's perspective. We've got the two parties of the covenant, Israel and God. And so we have got these two concepts of getting in to covenant status and staying in covenant, or getting into the people of God and staying in the people of God. I go on to say... The interpretations of quote works of the law end quote, and quote justified end quote. that is, when I say justified, I also mean viz. status of righteousness. These two terms in Paul become what I say uh, what I like to describe as tipping points of disagreement between the traditional Lutheran perspective on Paul and what I recognized as this newer perspective on Paul. Nowhere is this more clearly demonstrated in my experience than in the ongoing and sometimes heated debates over how to properly interpret and practically apply Galatians 2.16, which is a really good test case verse, uh, it's a verse that uses both of these foundationally important Jewish concepts, and let me just read the verse real quick so you can understand and we're gonna do this r- really quick um uh explanation of this verse right here in my commentary. recall remember that this was very early on in my commentary and I'm trying to give those who read my commentaries you know w- this is within the first two pages I'm trying to give them this this inside peek into basically the the my my uh Like I said, the mindset, the way I approach the book of Galatians, that way they can decide whether they even want to buy the book, you know, if this ever turns into a book, or whether they want to spend the time going through this commentary with me week by week. And now we've been going through it for two years now, right? So this is what I like to do for my readers. Let's read Galatians 2.16, just in case you're unfamiliar. It reads, quote, and Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Quote. Again, Galatians 2.16 from the ESV. And many... Christian commentaries and Bible uh, teachers recognize that this verse forms probably one of the key, if not chair passages, out of the book of Galatians because it so succinctly captures um, the, the force of what Paul's trying to convey to his audience there in the community of Galatia. Here's what I have to say in my commentary. Sanders describes his own understanding of works of the law, that phrase that we find in, in Paul, found, I think, six, seven, or eight times if we include the book of Romans and, and some of the other writings as well. Uh, just So throughout the Pauline corpus of literature, we find this phrase works of the law, depending on how you translate the Greek, we find either works of law or derivative of it, something like that. We find it about six, seven, or eight times, if I remember and the, and the majority of them, just a reminder, of, of are found in the book of Galatians. I think, what, five or six of them, something like that. And the other two or three or four are found in the book of Romans. So, Sanders describes this phrase, works of the law, thusly. Here's how um, Sanders understands works of the law and righteousness. These are the two terms that are kind of heated, uh, like, like I described earlier, the kind of the tipping points of disagreement. These two terms, works of the law and righteousness. Here's how Sanders describes them. Quote, One does not find in Paul any trace of the Greek and Hellenistic Jewish distinction between being righteous, man to man, and pious, man to God. So there's two levels of righteousness that that Sanders is reminding us of about. There's a righteousness that that is experienced as man interacts with man, and there's a righteousness that man experiences as he interacts with God. So there's kind of two levels in view. Uh, Sanders goes on to say, nor is righteousness in Paul one virtue among others. Here, however, there's also a major shift for to be righteous in Jewish literature, according to Sanders, means to obey the Torah and to repent of transgression. But in Paul, it means to be saved by Christ. Understand there? Right. So, most succinctly Sanders goes on to say righteousness in Judaism and when he says Judaism please understand he's just referring to traditional Judaism this would be your traditional unbelieving Jewish people in other words your 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 a uh, standard Jewish perspective that does not uh Make any claim that Jesus is the Christ, so basically your average Jew that you were to meet your average Jew that you'd meet today if you were to encounter someone on the street or uh, stroll into a synagogue that's what Sanders means by Judaism there all right so historic Judaism, traditional Judaism, etc uh, Sanders says most succinctly, righteousness in Judaism is a term which implies the maintenance of status among the group of the elect. Uh, emphasis on that phrase, maintenance. There, in Paul, however, this term righteousness is a transfer term. In Judaism, that is, concomitant, I'm sorry, uh, commitment to the covenant puts one in right. Commitment to uh, the uh, to the covenant that God makes with Israel brings an individual into the larger group. That's how Sanders describes it. While obedience, that is, righteousness, in other words, right living, doing the right thing according to God's uh, definition of righteousness so obedience subsequently keeps one in you guys following along with me so you get in by commitment to the covenant that is to say you get into the people of God if we' if we were to describe the people of God as kind of a a, um, a members' only club that 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 those who were not members we're seeking to become members, so use that kind of analogy in your head you 're seeking to join a group you've got an individual trying to join a larger an existing larger group, and to get into the group, according to Sanders' uh, research into this uh, first century Jewish worldview, according to Sanders, one got into the group by committing himself to the covenant that that's how he got in and then once you 're in this the maintenance or the obedience is what kept you in as a covenant member. Understand? All right. So Sanders goes on to continue. In Paul's usage quote, be made righteous, and quote. This phrase, be made righteous, or be justified, right? Some derivative of the dikaios the, the word group that we find in Greek, which translates over as, uh, or gets parsed into, like, either dikaiosune, you know, the noun form, or uh, dikaios in the verbal form in the Greek. Some, some derivative of this, of this dikai uh, root word, or dikaios, this justified verb group. All right, any of those words that we find in Paul quite often? This phrase is a term indicating getting in in Paul, not staying in the body of the saved. So Paul, quite frequently, according to Sanders, uses this dikaios or dikaiosune or something like that to describe getting in, not staying in the body of the saved. Thus, when Paul says that one cannot be made righteous by the works of the law, like we read in Galatians 2.16 above, um, according to Sanders, Paul means that one cannot by the works of the law, quote, transferred to the body of the saved, end quote. Alright, you can't get in. So that, again, they have the emphasis on uh, getting into the body of the saved or getting into the larger group, getting into the this uh, members-only club or getting into Israel, however you want to describe it there. Instead, uh, uh, Sanders goes on to con- conclude, when Judaism said that one is righteous who obeys the law, the meaning is that one thereby stays in the covenant, Understand the careful distinction when Judaism talks about a person is righteous, they're talking about a person who's already an existing covenant member. They're not talking about a person who's trying to get into the covenant, like a Jew who's outside of God's family and is seeking to get in, you know, knock, knock, knock on the door. Uh, can I? Can you let me in? That's not what Judaism is describing. Instead, when they're talking about righteousness, or one who keeps the Torah and is, is righteous because of their obedience, uh, faithfulness to the Torah or their commitment to to commandment keeping, then Judaism is describing a person who's staying in or or main, maintaining or maintaining their their position as an existing covenant member. Sanders concludes by saying the debate about righteousness by faith or by works of law, thus turns out to result from the different usage of the righteous word group. And we already mentioned earlier that this righteous word group goes a long way when studying Paul. That footnote number three was lifted from E. P. Sanders Paul in Palestinian Judaism. That's actually the book that if you're curious about if you're more if, if you're curious and you want to want to know more about this disposition called New Perspective on Paul, if it's piqued your curiosity if you've never heard of it before, your first time hearing this. And uh, as far as you know, uh, that's something that's uh, worth looking into. We'll uh, start by picking up that book. That's the kind of, the, like I said, the book that created the firestorm that kind of the, kicked off the whole issue. All right, let's continue my commentary. We'll read just another half page, and then we'll jump down into the, uh, the verse-by-verse section in the book of uh, Galatians here. I go on to say, I want my readers to know right up front so I don't want anyone to misunderstand me, that I do not, emphasis on the word not, I do not believe that one can be counted as forensically righteous, viz. saved, by keeping the Torah. Please don't misunderstand me. For that matter, I do not believe that God ever expected perfect obedience or that the Bible insinuates a hypothetical perfect law of keeping anywhere at all. Those of you who followed my commentaries for any length of time know that I'm big on on uh, uh, trying to dis, uh, trying to uh, distance myself from the um, from the traditional Christian view of, of that teaches that um, that believes that the first century Jews were trying to keep the Torah to become saved and that they're also trying to keep the Torah or and or that the that Christianity believes that the Judaism's believed that uh, that God expected some type of perfect. Um, standard of obedience in order, uh, in now in there's kind of a hypothetical, if you keep the law perfectly, then you can be saved, but you know, God knowing that no one could keep it perfectly, had to send Yeshua, uh, who could keep it perfectly, so that we could trust in Yeshua to be saved, something like that. So the point I'm trying to make is that I don't believe that the Torah... Uh, sets up a hypothetical, perfect law-keeping standard at all, nowhere in the Tanakh, nowhere in the New Testament. I I don't find that. That's a logic that I don't follow from traditional Christian standard. Here's what I have to keep saying. Here's what I uh, go on to say in my commentary. For one thing, all of the laws cannot be enacted by a single individual because the totality of them were not designed by God to be done by a single individual. Right? If you follow this idea that, if you're fond of saying that uh, Yeah, there's this hypothetical perfect law-keeping standard that God has set up in the Bible that God, on the one hand, knows that no one can keep, therefore He's going to punish people for not keeping it, but on the other hand, because He knows that no one can keep it, He's going to send His Son, Yeshua, who can keep it perfectly so that all we have to do is trust in Yeshua for salvation, therefore setting us free from this hypothetical perfect law-keeping standard. And the reason I say that that's, that's an illogical perspective, in other words, it's a wrong-headed way to view the Torah, is because the logic of that assumes that one single person could ostensibly, supposedly, uh, encounter the Torah, engage in Torah obedience, and simply check off each commandment as if it were some kind of simplistic grocery list, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and by the end of the day, you've checked off all you know, 613, etc., and then God's supposed to let you in if you kept them all perfectly. Well, the logic of that falls apart and so many levels, and one of them that I say in my commentary right here is that uh, the totality of the Torah was not even designed for one single person to be kept. For instance, I say, some of the commandments are for kings, some are for priests, some are for men, some for women, etc. So how in the world can, there, can one person keep all of it when all of it was not even written or designed for one single person? Right? Makes sense. However, the, quote, word is in our mouth, this is what we read in the Torah. The word is in our mouth and heart so that we can do it. That's kind of a lift from Deuteronomy 30 verse 14. Moshe says that the word is in our, mar- in our mouth and in our heart. We can do it. So it is, it is something doable. So again, it's not like God sets up an impossible standard that he knows that no one can keep. It's quite the opposite. Moshe says that we can do it, which means Moshe must not have interpreted the Torah as some impossible standard that no one can keep. Otherwise, why would Moshe say we can do it? Right? We can do it. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, go back and look that up when you have some time. Also, uh, when we get to the Apostolic Scriptures, 1 John 5, 3 says, His commandments are not burdensome. Again, John must have known something that many uh, Christians are fond of um, stating is that the that the Torah is burdensome. It's a it's a millstone around one's neck that no one can keep. It's it's an impossible standard. It's too hard. It's the commandments are too numerous. They're too burdensome. They're too uh, voluminous. The, the, the Torah is an impossible standard. It's just there's too many r- l- rules and laws. It's you, you get lost in the in the, in the minutia of it all. That's how uh, that's how I. Uh, regularly here traditional Christian commentaries describe uh, um, the Torah and things like that. And yet, John says that his commandments are not burdensome, so I don't think John agrees with this idea that there's too hard to keep or there's too many of them for us to keep, etc. And... Lastly, when we read through the book of Luke, uh, it's actually possible to be "quote righteous before God and walk blamelessly in all of the statutes and commandments." End quote. That's a description of of um, John the Baptist's parents uh, from uh, the writer Luke himself. He describes uh, John's parents as righteous before God and walking blamelessly in all the statutes and the commandments. Isn't that interesting? So according to prevailing Christian views, the Torah is an impossible standard. Well, that doesn't accord with what Moshe said in Deuteronomy. It doesn't accord with what Luke said in 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 the first chapter there. Also, according to traditional Christianity, the, the Torah is an impossible burden uh, because there's so many laws that everyone just trying to keep. And that doesn't accord with the book of first John. So we can see that. If if we take the Bible as a whole, just just jumping through these through these three sections that I've mentioned in my commentary right here, Deuteronomy, J- First John, and Luke, um, we find from there alone that uh, we need it, it challenges our traditional uh, Christian understanding of the Torah of God itself. And then, lastly, I've got one more reference. Uh, we have quote the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us end quote, and we read that from Paul's writings in the Book of Romans, chapter eight, verse four. Uh, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. So again, this cuts against, this goes counter to the traditional view that no one can keep the law, no one can fulfill it, only Jesus fulfilled it. I beg to differ. Paul says that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Who's the us? Well, of course, it's every believer who is naming the name of Yeshua as their Messiah. So I go on to say, in point of fact, quote, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That's a lift from 1 Timothy one eight with the understanding that, quote, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, uh, quote, if you, quote, love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to read that in Galatians 5.14, probably within the next week or next few weeks to come. All right? Love your neighbor as yourself is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul doesn't see that the law is an impossible standard. He doesn't see it as something that's burdensome. He doesn't see it as something that cannot actually be acquired or or uh, uh, righteousness, or blamelessness is something that someone can't uh, acquire or attain to. It's actually a standard that's doable, it's reachable. Moshe was right when he said it's in our heart and in our mouth that we can do it. The righteous requirement of the law is actually fulfilled in us if we walk according to the Spirit. And in point of fact, as Paul is going to go on to mention to Timothy, the law is actually good, not bad, but good if one uses it lawfully. So, um... All of this is helpful to understand when we're reading through the book of Galatians. Uh, I go on to say that understanding the law correctly means, I dare not suppose, that one can be counted as forensically righteous by the works of law, and I dare not suppose one can be counted as forensically righteous by being born Jewish or by becoming a Jewish proselyte. And if you were to go into my my commentary to section 3 below, you would get some more information on works of law and Jewish proselytism. All right. All right. Give me a second. Let's jump jump over to Skype and see what Skype's doing. Looks like we might have lost someone. Okay. Someone's someone's Skype dropped out there for a moment, but they were able to rejoin and mute their microphone. I appreciate that. Okay. And hope you can still see my screen. All right. So we're near the top of page four. Let me just read this Let's see, these last two paragraphs, and then we'll jump through the study. Trust me, the, the, the study part isn't very long. I can actually read it in five minutes, So, and I don't have to spend a lot of time on it. So I'm, I'm spending most of the commentary time on this section where I'm giving the readers and the listeners uh, this inside understanding of what I understand to be a, a better way of interpreting Paul and his letters. All right, so I go on to say top of page four, these last two paragraphs I'm going to read. However... I am unashamedly in favor of saved Jews and Gentiles walking into the Torah of Moshe as a blueprint for daily living. Most of you who followed my commentaries for any length of time are uh, familiar with that's my viewpoint. This includes many of what Christianity identifies as, quote, ceremonial, end quote, and or civil in quote-unquote commandments, such as seventh-day Sabbath-keeping, kosher-keeping, keeping the festivals of Leviticus 23, and other such patterns of religion that most people associate with, quote, Jewishness, in quote. I do not believe it was, quote, relaxed, in quote, or, quote, fulfilled, end quote, in Jesus, so that we no longer have to keep it. I'm, I'm telling you all of this right up front so people who read my commentary don't have to read you know, hundreds of pages in to figure out that, What? This 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 author is pro Torah. Nah, and then they they put the book down and say, I've, I've decided I don't want to to pursue that 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 um, that viewpoint on the book of Paul. I'm fine with that if if that if 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 you're that type of reader or listener who, who you know gets halfway through an author's book after reading several hundred pages, gets halfway through his book only to find out that, that he's pushing a certain view that you don't agree with, and then you, you close the book and decide not to read anymore. <laughs> I, so what I'm doing is I'm giving the readers this benefit right up front. Just open the first few pages of my commentary, read what I have to believe, Read read what my position is, and if you don't agree with it, I'm fine with you closing the commentary and going and going in a different direction. No problem there. All right, I'm just giving you that midpoint right up front. So I have to. I here's what I have to say. I don't believe that the Torah was relaxed or fulfilled in Jesus, so that we no longer have to keep it. I do not believe Paul warned any believers away from genuine spirit-led Torah obedience, whether they be Jewish or Gentile. After all, I'm sorry. After all, relevant sources have been brought to the table for examination. In the end. As a Messianic Jew with a pro-Torah conviction, this is my self-description, I find that I have more agreement with the direction that NPP is headed uh, towards covenant loyalty to Torah than with where Lutheran Paul is headed, which is away from covenant loyalty to Torah. And that's why I'm describing those two views this way, because of the prevailing... Uh, teachings that are found uh, today in Christian circles and in Messianic circles, okay? So it's, it's fair for everyone to know what an author is teaching so that you can uh, invest the time, like I said, to go through the research that the author is going to uh, take you through and decide whether or not you want to put that uh, research into your head and invest the time that it takes to, to look up the passages and consider what that author is saying. So I'm giving all of this right up from. Last paragraph, and then we'll jump right into the section, verse-by-verse section. Down below, I I want to let the readers know right up front that my primary thesis to understanding the book of Galatians essentially launches from the new perspective on Paul. Although this is my disclaimer, I do not agree with all of the ramifications of the NPP view, and particularly with some of Sanders' conclusions to his studies. But I say I think the new the NPP the new Paul perspective is headed in the right direction. I really do. Uh, Indeed, we have needed a fresh look at Pauline studies for a long time. And now that scholars are ready to accept the fact that Paul was a Jew who maintained a lifelong loyalty to Torah, even after coming to faith in the risen Yeshua, I think we're finally able to begin to study Paul on his own terms and to let him have his own voice instead of that of a 16th century reformer. Of course, that's a poke at Luther himself. All right. Having said all of that, everyone ready? Let's jump now into the section that we're going to be looking at, and I'll just take the last 10 minutes or so of my commentary and read this. And it's not a it's not a meaty section, so it'll be easy to read. We're going to jump all the way down to chapter 5 in the commentary and scroll down to my section in, starting in verse six and, 5 and 6, and we'll pick up the commentary reading there. So give me a moment as I find it. All right, let's see. Okay, here we are. So we're near the bottom of page 160 in the written commentary if you're following along on the written notes. Uh, If not, just listen up. Uh, We're going to cover chapter 5, verses 5, 6, and 7. And as I mentioned, it only covers about a page worth of of notes. So I can easily read that uh, for you all. Uh, Let me just check Skype here and see what's going on. Everyone's with me. Yep. Yeah, okay. All right, everything looks good. Those of you who are with me in the live class, I hope you can still hear me and see my screen. And I thank you for muting your microphones. All right, let's read this real quick uh, for this last 10 minutes or so in my commentary. Uh, chapter 5, verse 5 and 6 read, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And here's what I have to say in my commentary. These two verses form a semi-conclusion to verses 1 through 4 in Paul's letter here. Verse 5 is included above in order to capture the context of Paul's double for, right, the Greek word gar, for, argument. Uh, indeed, if you go back and look at it in most English versions, both verses start with the same English word, right? For, through the Spirit, we by faith, and for, in Christ Jesus. Which, if, if, you're any, if, you've, had, if you've had any light uh, greek studies if you're student of greek or if you're attending seminary or anything like that you you know that this preposition gar often signals um a conclusion to um uh, 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 i'm sorry it often uh, uh, sorry i apologize for getting off track there my skype's doing something funny here um, this word gar here often signals as a as a um as a, a a, a, a section in the Bible where something's about to be concluded. So uh, that's the part of speech that we're dealing with. So um, I only want to f- specifically comment on verse 6, which reads, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. What does Paul mean by this phrase, circumcision or uncircumcision? All right, here's what I say in my, my uh, commentary. Paul repeats this statement with a slight variation uh, later on in, in uh, later on Galatians here in 6.15, and we're gonna we'll get to that in time, where he reads, quote, he wrote, quote, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation, end quote. So I asked this rhetorical question, is Paul now saying that Jewish identity is worthless after the cross? Is that what he means when he says circumcision is, doesn't mean anything? Or for that matter, is he also saying that Gentile identity is likewise useless? Is that what he means when he says that? If we interpret if, in, if indeed we interpret his words this way, then how can we reconcile them with what he states in Romans? Let's read a, a lift from Romans 3, where Paul writes, quote, What advantage has the Jew? Or, what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. End quote. That's Romans 3, verses 1 and 2 out of the NASB version of the Bible. So, if we entertain this idea that Paul is actually now saying that circumcision is worthless, Jewish identity is worthless, what matters now is faith in God, faith in Messiah, and being filled with the spirit, and no one needs to have to worry about Jewish identity anymore. well then, why did Paul go on why is Paul going to go on to write because recall that Romans comes historically after the book of Galatians, Why is he going to go on to write that there is an advantage? to Jewish identity and that there, there's a benefit to circumcision and not only a benefit but a great in every respect benefit, right? So it sounds like Paul's uh, contradicting himself. Let's go on to read my commentary. In a seeming reversal of opinion, Paul states in Romans that Jewish identity is, quote, great in every respect, end quote. This doesn't sound like he consistently, uh, this doesn't sound like he consistently thought Jewish identity to be worthless perhaps he changed his mind from time from the time he wrote Galatians to the time he wrote Romans, right? I've read commentaries who uh, posit that uh, idea that Paul changed his position from the time that he wrote Galatians to the time that he wrote Romans um, To make matters even more confusing as we're looking at this aspect, he ends up repeating his original Galatians comment in his letter to the book of Corinthians, right? Gosh, Paul, where are you going with this? I go on to say rhetorically. Um, He says in 1 Corinthians 7.19, reading out of the NASB version again, quote, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Right, so we got Galatians, and then we got Romans, and then we got Corinthians, and I can't remember off the top of my head if Corinthians comes before or after the Galatians, or after, before or after uh, Romans. I know it definitely comes after Galatians. Galatians is one of his earlier books, written in the fifties, and Romans is written later, I think, in the sixties, mid sixties. But I can't remember where, where uh, Corinthians falls in the middle there if it's after Galatians or, and before Romans, or if it's after Romans. But either way, we got Paul kind of going back and forth with this idea of circumcision means nothing, and then, oh no, circumcision is great. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a great benefit in, 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 the, in circumcision, right? What, what should we make of this? Here's what I have to say in my commentary. Is Paul schizophrenic? <laughs> Why does he seemingly keep going back and forth on his opinions about Jewish identity? Is it valueless, or is it great in every respect? Right. This is, of course, rhetorical, and I'm being a bit facetious here just to prove my point, I say in my commentary. Context must determine the meaning of any given word or phrase we find in the Bible, and most of you who have studied the Torah know that, that that's a, a, an extremely important perspective to take. Context is really king. The context of Paul's whole warning in this chapter right here in the Galatians chapter 5 is what I say, indeed in the book as a whole, Galatians, is, and listen up, because this is really the meat, Um the context of, of the meat of the book of Galatians, which we, we get a snapshot here in this particular chapter of, of uh, Galatians, is the quality of Jewish and Gentile ethnicity in the kingdom of God. Or, to put it the way an old Baptist preacher once told me, quote, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. End quote. That's what Paul's trying to teach. This is, by the way, the exact opposite of the message the influencers were teaching for, as I say in my, my notes here, in their theology there was no place in Israel for the Gentile wishing to be counted as equal among his legally Jewish counterparts, his legally Jewish recognized counterparts. And that was why it's important to go back and refresh, uh, rehearse this, the, my, this concept of commonal nomism and, and the works of the law and, and this new perspective on Paul. All right, it's because of of understanding the influencers um, inequality of Jew and Gentile, and that was their whole message, and that was what drove Paul to uh, write the way he writes. In my opinion, I go on to say my commentary as we're con- drawing this uh, our uh, study to a close, Paul is not denigrating one ethnicity in favor of another. He's not he's not telling people, "Hey, you Jews and Gentiles, just stop thinking about your Jewishness. Okay, it's worthless. Circumcision is worthless. Don't focus on it anymore. Jewishness is worthless." Uh, and by the same token, because he says uncircumcision counts for nothing, so we have to swing it both ways if we're saying that Jewishness is worthlessness. We also have to have Paul saying that Gentileness, if I could create a word that doesn't exist, Gentile ethnicity is worthless as well. Paul's not really, he's not really slamming either ethnicity. He's not slamming Jewishness or Gentileness, if I could create a word. He's not denigrating one ethnicity in favor of another. Paul actually values all ethnicities and Paul would be the first to teach that a person should value his ethnicity and praise God in what other station of life they find themselves in without investing unnecessary time trying to change things, right? Understand? Sometime in your personal reading time, go back and read um, 1 Corinthians 7.20 where Paul talks about uh, uh, where we continue in that passage about, um, that we looked at above there, where circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Paul talks in that same passage about, you know, those who are married try to seek to be single, those who are single seek to be married, and at the point he's trying to make in that passage, which is relevant to, to our uh, passage here, is that, um What matters most in god 's eyes uh is not necessarily one station in life you know your ethnicity or your your whether or not you 're single or married or whether or not you 're slave or free or anything of that male or, f- or more female um your ethnicity or your gender or things like that what 's most most important is is your commitment to God and to his kingdom to to taking the gospel to living a life that's pleasing to God to being filled with the spirit to, to turning to, to leading a life that's that's turning away from sin uh, to loving one's neighbors yourself you know that those are the things that are that are way, more weighty in God's eyes not the, the the stations in life that we as humans find ourselves in and that's the point that Paul's trying to bring up here so I go and say my commentary so even though Jewish and Gentile identities are important in God's scheme of things, he also realized, Paul does, he also realized that once he came to believe in Yeshua, Paul did, that being born Jewish did not grant a person automatic corporate right standing in God's sight. And that last sentence to that phrase, automatic corporate right standing in God's sight, that's essentially, as I understand it, the basic foundational hermeneutic of the Judaizers of Paul's days, of the influencers. This, what I like to describe as this ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism or this, this nationalism that pervaded the Judaisms of Paul's days that, that uh, drove their halakha to reject uh, Gentile inclusion into the people group known as Israel. I go on to say in my commentary, um, uh, let's see, where did I stop... I lost my place. Oh, there we go. Okay. Starting right here. I go to say my commentary, concluding with uh, verses 5 and 6 of Galatians chapter 5. Nor did conversion to Judaism guarantee a personal place in the ulam Haba. So, from, from Paul's perspective, there were two types of people in Paul's day that were seeking uh, righteousness in God's eyes. There was the Jew who was seeking to be righteous in God's eyes. And then there was the Gentile who was seeking the same thing. And for the Jew in Paul's day, essentially the Jew felt that he was Born with a righteousness because of his heritage, because of his Jewish identity, because of his nat- natural belonging to the people group known as Israel, because he was born of Jewish parents, he felt that he kind of was born with this righteousness that he was seeking, and the only thing that was incumbent upon him was to walk a life that was pleasing to God that uh, that amounted to a, a, a a certain amount of maintenance of keeping his place in the covenant people known as Israel. But for the unfortunate Gentile who was not born with this heritage, with Jewish lineage, well then that person had to undergo the conversion policy that was being uh, pushed in Paul's day. He had to undergo conversion to Judaism Take on legal Jewish status, and then once he accomplished that step, which could take as long as a year by some reckoning after he went through all the the what's like three or four steps, depending on whether you 're male or female, that would include of course physical circumcision if you were male. once he went through the uh, the conversion ritual and he came out the other end as a legally recognized Jew, he was then uh, recognized as a as an Israelite, and then he was acc- accorded um, covenant status from their perspective supposedly right that was their limited viewpoint on it and the jewish community then recognized them as a good standing jew who was then um uh what should i say who was then um expected to tow the standard jewish party line of keeping the torah for maintenance of your covenant membership Alright, so that's where we get the whole idea of works of the law. This this sectarian concept of, of getting into the group, staying in the group, and making sure you maintain your position in the group. In other words, steer free of sin, steer free of idolatry, steer free of covenant breaking so that you don't get which is cut off, or uh, what do we say, excommunicated from the group. So I go on to say that uh, Paul, of course, is going to combat this idea. Conversion to Judaism did not guarantee a person, a place in the Olam Haba, a place in the Olam of the age to come, which is kind of the Jewish view of heaven, the age to come, the Olam Haba. That same Baptist preacher that I mentioned earlier used to say that when we get to heaven, and St. Peter meets us at the pearly gates and asks why he should let us in, right, into heaven, that Saint Peter's not going to ask us if we are Jewish or not. Get my point? Instead, Saint Peter's going to ask if we are in Christ or not. And that was kind of a humorous way for me to remember um the the traditional viewpoint that Christians teach. All right, so that's basically verses 5 and 6 uh where Paul talks about uh the, you know mentions in verse um he mentioned in verse 6, from Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. And as I mentioned, this gar here in the Greek is a kind of a conclusion. This, this um, conjunction forms a kind of conclusion to everything he's been building up to. And that's why we can see he mentions circumcision here in verse 6. And it's because he already mentioned circumcision in verse 2 here. He mentioned it again in verse 3 here, and therefore he's going to have to bring some sort of conclusion in verse 6. And by the way, when we get down to verse 12 later on next week, he's going to, I'm sorry, verse 11, he's going to mention circumcision again, if I'm still preaching circumcision. And I think that's telling that he keeps mentioning circumcision, because as we've already talked about in previous commentaries, I believe that the word circumcision, Paul is often a kind of a, a buzz term, a shorthand word, a shortened a shorthand for Jewish identity or a Jewish ethnicity or proselyte conversion or something to that effect, not just merely physical circumcision or you know, the cutting away of the foreskin. All right, let's conclude with verse seven real quick. It's just of one short paragraph. Um, verse seven reads You were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Right when we read that, that's why we read it, included it in our liturgy. Um, Paul says in this section, these are my comments, that Paul describes his readers as quote running a good race end quote, and we find that theme elsewhere in Paul's writings where he's, you know he talks about I've run the race. Uh, henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of glory. I think we read that in, in Philippians. Um, Paul talks about that the Christian life. The life of a believer is a race. And that's such a very important analogy, I think. I go on to say in my commentary that this description of running a race means that he regarded the the Galatians as beginning with the truth of the gospel and only after considering, uh, we're near the top of page 162, after considering the ethnocentric message of the influencers did his Galatian readers uh, veer off the straight path it's a straight and true path, so to, so to say. In fact, I go on to say in my writing, Paul even goes so far as to indicate that if it were not for the sway of this other quote-unquote gospel that we read about in chapter 1, right? Paul says if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. If either we or an angel from heaven preaches a pseudo-gospel, another gospel, which is not really another gospel at all, but this other gospel was was having influence in his community. And if it were not for this other gospel, for the sway or this, the pull of this other gospel, that the Galatians would likely still be in pursuit of pure truth. That's what Paul's saying. In other words, I go on to say in my commentary, Paul doesn't seem to indicate that once his readers acquired truth, that they then went looking for, quote, more truth in the marketplace of religions, right? It's not like they they had accepted the truth of Christianity and yet we're not completely satisfied with it and decided to go searching for more religious truth. I don't think that's what's going on in the book of Galatians and I don't think that's why Paul has to warn them. It's not like they went went looking for for the gospel, found it in the in the in the ter, in the person of Yeshua and the concept of Christianity and then decided that wasn't enough and decided to go shopping in the in the marketplace of Jewish religion as well. I don't think that's what happened. In other words, Paul doesn't seem to indicate that that once his readers acquired this truth that they didn't went looking for more truth in the marketplace of religions, but rather, I say they were already on the good path of genuine truth, so they were they had found the truth and they were running for the finish line in that body of truth. And yeah, and if you keep this analogy of the of the runners in in mind, you you got a bunch of runners in a race, right? Many different people running around the track. So there's more than one runner. You know, you got a person, in, a runner in lane one, and then a runner in lane two, three, four, five, six, etc. So it's like one of the persons, the Galatian Gentiles, were running in their own lane, right, lane one. And then Paul seems to describe it as if these influencers come running along in lane two, in the same race, and then they Cut in, which is what the Greek word talks about, where who, who who tripped you up, so to say, the Greek term seems to imply. Somebody cut in, like put their leg out in front of you as you're running, so sort to of trip you up, cut in and upset their momentum in so many wrong ways, to, uh, to use the running metaphor that Paul's choosing. That's why Paul says in verse 7, you were running away, who hindered you from obeying the truth? That, that word hindered there in the Greek. Mm-hmm. Who upset you, who hindered you from obeying this truth? All right. So with that, we'll close the commentary tonight. And starting next week, we'll turn. We're going to skip a bunch of verses. Recall that in this commentary, I'm not covering every verse. This is kind of like James. I'm sorry. This is more like um, kind of like David Stern's version of the commentary. Uh, If you if you own Jewish New Testament commentary, you'll notice that uh, David Stern doesn't actually comment on every single verse in his New Testament commentary. He only hits the ones that he thinks are most relevant for his readership. And I'm doing the same thing. So. Uh, We stopped with verse 7, and then starting next week, we're going to jump all the way down to verse 11. So we're going to really skip verse 8, 9, and 10. Uh, We're not going to comment on those. don't think they involve a lot of heavy... uh, Oops, what's going on with my computer? Give me a second here. Sorry about that. (laughs) Okay. There's not a lot of of, uh, heavy um, theological uh, interworkings that we need to examine for verses 8, 9, and 10. Instead, we'll jump right back down into verse 11 where as it picks up the relevance for us as messianics. All right. Um, With that, let's go ahead and close the commentary. Um, I'm not sure. There we go. not sure what's going on with the parts of my commentary here, but uh, let's just jump over here, and that'll be better. For those of you who are with me in the live class... um, Go ahead and stay with me for a split second. I'll just close in prayer. And then you can open up your microphones for comments after prayer. And if you'd like to stay for the after-chat session for, you know, 10, 15 minutes as you have time, that's great. If not, and you have to leave, I understand as well. Let's close in prayer. I bless your name and I thank you for the opportunity to share with the students. I thank you for the body of truth that we have for us here today. This precious book of Galatians has been preserved for us down through the ages. Holy Spirit, we know that you gave Paul the impetus to write these words with passion, with 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 importance, with with elegance, with style, but but with, with Uh, an urgency, Lord. We know that that there was something that was taking place in the first century that that you wanted to get across to your people, and you inspired Paul to pen these words, and uh, you not only felt that it was important for the first century believers there in, in the community of Galatia, but Lord, you also felt that these words would be important enough for us uh, us in the body, the, those of us who have survived down to the 21st century, to have these words as well. And so, Holy Spirit, we know that it is you who have preserved these words for us down through the ages. We thank you for superintending the script, for keeping the, the body uh, safe, and for allowing us to have it with us. What a precious treasure that we have here the very words of god uh, that have been um, uh, preserved for us uh, this day so that we can study them so that we can put them within us so that we can uh, be pleasing to you so that we can uh, be a people that's equipped uh, to take the good news thank you father for this opportunity to study be with each and every uh, one of us uh, as we go our separate ways this week and bring us back together next week if the lord willing so that we can study again we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Shim Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or New Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him,